I know you come for the conversation, but you stay for the music. Mark Thompson here for Jank on The Conversation. It's a pleasure to have you along today. I always say it. It's so exciting to do this show because I meet so many different people doing so many different things and making a difference in so many different communities. And today is uh, it's all politics and people are doing grassroots work uh, to candidates in very important races. We'll start in Pennsylvania. Skylar Hurwitz is running in Pennsylvania's first district. And uh, Skylar, uh, Pennsylvania is an interesting place to be a progressive candidate. Welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. You're a conservationist, which I love already. Tell us a little about you. Excellent. So my whole experience is really built around solar and environmental conservation projects. I worked with this organization called the National Association of Regional Councils in DC. And they basically are where all the local governments and regional governments go to when they're trying to get the federal government to fund local programs like parks and rec or green infrastructure, just infrastructure at large. So they were working on cutting the cost of solar. So I worked there for a little while. And then I worked at Conservation International, which is really an excellent organization doing work all around the world that stemmed out of the Nature Conservancy. And I was managing a $40 million portfolio for them where I would basically go to places like my portfolio is mainly Southeast Asia, Western Africa and Southern Africa. So it was quite a wide, uh, quite a wide geography, but it was, uh, but it was excellent to go and actually meet organizations on the ground, meet these small nonprofits that were trying to learn how to basically manage an organization because they knew how to do the work on the ground, but they didn't know how to get the funding and track it properly and report back to big donors because we were, you know, European Union and World Bank and MacArthur Foundation funded, so we needed to really prove the money was being used properly. So that was kind of my job was to get in there on the ground and help ensure that these nonprofits could really. Uh, proved what they were doing. And it was an excellent opportunity for me to see the reality of the climate crisis on the ground. And that's really what sparked my uh, desire to get into politics at this moment, because I did not see anyone speaking to these issues, given really the current level of the crisis. I love that you say that you were there and saw it firsthand, because that is what struck me about those places you mentioned. They really are in the front line of the climate crisis. Absolutely. I mean, I got, you know, I'll say I'm fortunate enough to have been able to have gotten a scuba license during some of that time. And so seeing some of the reefs that people had been to in the past, seeing the sort of health of that was eye opening for me to not be looking at just some random photos or a video on Twitter or some news article, but to actually be there seeing it with my own eyes. So it was definitely eye opening. And it's something where, you know, I had some of the people I was working with had done some of the original biodiversity studies in places like Cambodia when it first opened up after the Vietnam War. And, you know, that is something where there's uh, their entire forests, eight hour drives worth of a forest that are gone. Uh, And so you just see that happening around the world. And it really makes you think, you know, where is the United States leadership when it's needed? Why are we busy in endless wars and spending our trillions of dollars on that when we could be having such a positive impact on the world if we decided to pursue this, you know, diplomatic and kind of green alternative path? I just don't understand why our politicians aren't taking that that step forward. And I think that's why we need a fresh generation of leadership in power in Washington. Well, here, here, and you point to Cambodia. I was there as well, and not as for as long clearly as you were there. But I mean, you see some of these 
these environmental regions in freefall, in environmental freefall, and, it, and it's scary. And you're right, the US could uh, make such a difference in a role of leadership because we have the economic uh, leverage uh, to make it happen. So how does all that play in Pennsylvania? <laughs> It's an interesting play in Pennsylvania. You're right to uh, to be uh, uh, on the edge of your seat there. I guess it's an environment where people are, particularly in my district, very much concerned about the environment. I mean, last time around, a Democrat ran who was on a pretty strong environmental message, and he did quite well. The issue was really that uh, this was a multimillionaire self-funding his campaign against a pretty popular incumbent. And so the message was strong, but just I think the personality didn't didn't quite land with the people the way it needed to. They didn't see him as one of them. And so I do believe that this year to have someone who's you know born and raised here, I'm the only candidate in the race, well at least in the Democratic primary that went to our public schools here. I'm a very down to earth kind of guy on that front, but I've definitely been pushing the bounds of what I can do as a young person in my career. That's something that I'm very proud of, and I think that this district would be proud to have representing it because it's just a very a real story, a very homegrown kind of story. And this district is one that went for Hillary in the last election. Is that what happened? Yeah, so it was a really interesting, really interesting situation there. So Hillary won at the presidential level, but Brian Fitzpatrick, the Republican incumbent, won at the congressional level. And then in 2018, I think there were only three or four districts in the state of Pennsylvania where that happened, where there was that presidential and congressional blue-red split. And then in 2018, those others were wiped out. And this remained as the only one seat that had gone blue for Hillary that still is red even after those midterms. So this is really a seat that was early early on a toss up. Since the local party made their endorsement of my opponent, it's moved into the leaning Republican category. But I've got a strong grassroots organization forming here on the ground with the Revolution Pennsylvania endorsement and a few other ones that could be coming quite soon, it looks like. So that's really shaking up how they usually do their political campaigning around here. And I'm confident that that's going to bring us some success when it comes to the April 28th primary. Isn't it interesting that you are against a Republican incumbent? I'm sure that all of these things, even the the brief list that we've touched on, this list is not something I would imagine that your Republican incumbent opponent is about in any way. You know, he's done an excellent job of branding himself as this independent voice. He's really seen as a moderate to many people, despite the fact that he is really voting party line on on the important issues. But he he has done, uh, you know, he's the younger brother of a far more popular congressperson who unfortunately passed away recently. And uh, I think that's really what's played his benefit uh, because he's he's really tricked people into thinking he is a uh, major environmentalist. He's tricked people into thinking he is very much in favor of everyone's health care, even as we're stripping that and defunding it, and that he's in favor of our public schools, even as our public schools are being really just drained of financing by charter schools in the area. So uh, that's something that's uh, an interesting situation for us to be in. And it's one where I think having a progressive candidate that really has an alternative vision of where we're going to go. With public schools and with higher education and you know trade school and opening up our economy really to the everyday people once again and making it work for them again, uh, that's something that's really going to resonate with people because they've just felt left behind around here. You know, Skylar, you talk about these things and and these are all laudable goals. But one of the things that I'm impressed with is that you really have pointed to ways to pay for these things that you indicate are your priorities. 
that was my goal coming in. I didn't want to launch a congressional campaign with a bunch of policy statements on a website that you could go and look at and say, oh, sounds like a nice politician. I wanted to give everyone the real plan of what are the price tags going to be. You know, I had the local newspaper earlier, I was in on their podcast, the Courier Times, and they're giving me a lot of trouble. I was explaining how I wanted to pay for things, what the costs would be, and they're yelling at me. You know, Bernie Sanders last week said he doesn't know how much it's all gonna cost. He doesn't know how much it's all gonna cost. And it was just kind of an intense moment of, you know, I get that you may have your preconceived notions around certain presidential candidates, but uh, yeah, my campaign's been based very much around that substance just from day one so that everyone can really feel that the fair tax platform will work for them. Yeah, you take that incoming fire because you're a progressive candidate and you were inspired sort of by Bernie Sanders. So they come at you the way they come at Bernie, but you are you really have the nuts and bolts and X's and O's or whatever parallel you want, however you wanna describe it. You have that figured out for your fair tax platform and beyond. I appreciate that, and that's something that I think that, again, the constituents around here are ready for that type of honesty when it comes to policy. They appreciate understanding that they won't have those out-of-pocket expenses or premiums or deductibles or co-pays with their health insurance under Medicare for All. They understand that it'll be a 4% payroll tax, but they're able to do the math on what that'll mean for their premium, You know, their monthly costs, is that a savings or not? And for most people here, it's a substantial savings, 30 40%. So this is something where I think it's very popular around here to go straight to the outcomes, straight to the reality of the situation. And I think that's what people are hungry for is someone who just is done with the labels of uh, of left and right around here and is just more concerned about helping everyday families live the lives they should be able to live. And with the coronavirus really right now, it's something where we should have paid sick leave and we should have Medicare for all so that nobody's afraid of getting tested and nobody's afraid of staying home. But that kind of, you know, I could go off on that on a whole another rant, but that's something that's really concerning to me right now is that we truly do need, especially at a moment like this, someone who is down in Washington ready to fight for paid sick leave and for Medicare for all because we're seeing what could potentially happen. I mean, hopefully things are under control, but so far certain parts of the world, we're seeing it have have a devastating impact. And so I hope that we can move towards a society that really does put people's health and well-being first. No, that's just so well said. I mean, health related issues and healthcare related issues are front and center right now. Uh, we only have a few seconds left. I'm just curious about your congressional district, Pennsylvania's first district. Just give us a snapshot of that district and like what it consists of, what, it, what it's made up of. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to do that. So we're just north of Philadelphia. Uh, this is all of Bucks County and a sliver of Montgomery County that includes Lansdale. That's uh, the, the part of Montgomery is maybe 10% of the district. So it's relatively cohesive, but it's right along the Delaware River, uh, along New Jersey as well, bordering it to one side. So it's uh, it's a pretty diverse district. Uh, you could probably almost divide it up into three sub districts because it's you know got the kind of more urban feeling, closer to Philadelphia, more suburban feeling, and then a pretty rural, uh, even farmland type uh, feeling in the in the northern part of the district. So it's quite large. And so you have to hope that that message resonates with enough people across that diverse uh, group. And I wish we could continue to talk to you. I, I just think, I, I love that you're a conservationist. I love that you're a small business owner. You have a history in the region. I wish you the very best of luck. Let's show everybody SkylarForCongress.com if you want more information on Skyler Hurwitz, it's there, SkylerForCongress.com. And donation, of course, actblue.com slash donate slash 
Skyler, PA1, the volunteer, SkylerForCongress.com slash get dash involved. But it's all there at SkylerForCongress.com. Skyler Hurwitz, good luck, and uh, thanks for visiting with us on the conversation. Thanks so much, Mark. Have a great night. You too. We'll be back. Welcome back to The Conversation. I am Mark Thompson here for Jank, and uh, really a pleasure to go to West Virginia. There's a gubernatorial race there that's uh, exciting. Exciting for some fresh voices that are taking place uh, in and around West Virginia, and Stephen Smith is such a voice. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Mark, glad to be on. Uh, Stephen Smith, give us a sense of West Virginia. First of all, everyone knows West Virginia's gorgeous, it's stunning. But uh, also in the mix of uh, that st those stunning vistas that are West Virginia are environmental concerns and labor concerns. There was a big uh, strike, I recall, with teachers. And, and uh, uh, so it seems as though there's a big political movement brewing in West Virginia uh, alongside all that beautiful scenery. Yeah, that's right. That for generations, West Virginia has been the kind of place that knows how to fight for what we need. And we saw that 100 years ago during the mine wars. We saw it two years ago where West Virginia educators sparked a nationwide strike movement. And that's the kind of energy this campaign is built on. Uh, we have raised uh, more money than any other candidate for governor, uh, but the way we're doing it is small dollar donations, largely from educators. We have 60 times as many donations from educators as all of our opponents combined. Uh, we're also, as we'll talk about more later, we've recruited other people to run for office, including 14 educators who were involved in that strike movement. And uh, the energy of this campaign is just based on uh, an old story in West Virginia about come together across race and across religion, we're to defeat the good old boys club that is always uh, standing with their foot on our necks. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, so well put. And as I recall, your background is very much in a world of activism. I think your dad was an activist, isn't that right? Yeah, my dad helped start the West Virginia Coalition for the Homeless and the Public Defender Services. My wife is a public defender. Uh, my background for the last 20 years has been working as an organizer. You know, what we believe in this campaign is that one politician isn't the answer. One governor is not going to save us. We can only save ourselves. And from day one, we haven't been lying to voters and saying, vote for me, I'll fix everything. We say, you're invited to be a part of a government of, by, and for us. Uh, and what that looks like is at, at the very beginning of the campaign, we said, we know we need more than one governor. And we put together this pledge and we said, if you're willing to run this kind of campaign, no corporate PAC money, never cross a picket line, uh, unapologetically pro-labor, never hide from a debate. If you'll run that kind of campaign, a people's campaign will help just like we did in the old days where the person at the top of the ticket is there to recruit and train and support candidates. And we thought, you know, if we can find 15 or 20 candidates to run with us, that would be a revolution. Here we are a year later, there are 91 candidates running on the West Virginia can't wait slate, 91 of us disproportionately black, disproportionately working class, disproportionately women and members of the LGBTQ plus community. We are a movement that actually represents the people of our state. And we're running for city council, delegate, state, Senate, Congress. And when we all run together, we all have a better shot 
of winning. It's the oldest idea in politics. And uh, we actually just went through and looked at these numbers. Um, more than half of the 91 of us are 40 years of age or younger. So don't tell us that the people, the young people in our state are not ready to fight for what we want. Well, in looking at your mission statement, it's so impressive. You say our campaign wants your vote, but we're also going to need your experience, your energy, your ideas. And it's one thing to say that, but then as you've just demonstrated, you actually have put together this massive coalition. That's right, and not just people running for office, but a vision for what kind of government we want. We're tired of politicians that run on empty slogans. That's why so many of us don't vote. So we spent the entire first year of the campaign building a policy platform that was literally written by the people of West Virginia. We held uh, now more than 180 town halls. Uh, we put together a draft policy platform by listening to educators and nurses and working people. You know, our, our nurses plan was written by listening to nurses on the picket line in Greenbrier County. And at the end of all of that, we stitched together a draft platform, 31 detailed plans and how we pay for them. Then we took that draft back to our people who held 47 platform parties all across West Virginia and got to dig into the details submitted more than a thousand pieces of feedback. No, we want this, the money should go here, we should do this instead. And then we invited all of our county captains and constituency captains from across West Virginia to give one final vote. Uh, and it was our volunteers, the people who had done the work of listening to voters, they were the ones that got to vote on the final policy platform. I didn't even have a vote. And here we have now a genuine vision for how we rebuild the economy of West Virginia, literally written by the people on the front lines of our economy. And, and you can see it all for yourself online at wvcantwait.com. It's something else. And uh, you will see in its level of detail and uh, specificity about how we pay for everything, that it is literally a document that could not have been written by a single politician or by a handful of consultants. And that's what makes it uh, something worth fighting for. I want to get to your opponent or you know the the um, uh, the governor now in a second. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you in this sort of hyper polarized world of politics, how all this plays. I mean, you've described this very exciting, frankly, dynamic to your campaign and to the coalition and to the vision you have and how it's being played out. I'm just wondering how it plays in all of these stops, as you say, 180 different stops you've made across Pennsylvania, across uh, West Virginia, excuse me. Yeah, so uh, the story about our state and our country being divided left versus right, red versus blue is a lie. Uh, it's a profitable lie told by those uh, who get rich off of us treating each other like our own enemy, right? In West Virginia, uh, we are not each other's enemy because uh, we do a different job or because we live in a different region or because we have a different letter after our name. And every time we believe that we are each other's enemy, working class versus middle class, uh, rich versus uh, middle class, uh, black versus white, Christian versus Muslim, every time we buy into that, the people at the top win. And so the benefit of having a platform like this written from the bottom up is that it speaks to the direct personal interests of all kinds of people. And if I'm a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, um, and I see in this platform something that's gonna make my life better, 
then I want to be a part of that. You know, just a month ago, we held a uh, one of our town halls, a fundraiser. Uh, we raised money and volunteers at every one of our town halls. We held this town hall in the home of uh, proud Trump supporters in the uh, uh, most southern southernmost county in West Virginia, and they were excited to host a, a fundraiser a stop for our campaign, even though they know that we fundamentally disagree on all kinds of issues. Um, but what they saw was a policy platform and a campaign that also spoke to their direct interests. They want cannabis legalization. We're the only campaign that provides it. They're small business owners, and we're the only campaign that has a real plan to shift tax breaks from out-of-state corporations back to small businesses and union shops. And even more than any of that, they saw that we're the only campaign that doesn't take corporate PAC money or big pharma or big energy money. And voters are smart. They know they're never gonna agree with a politician on every issue. But what we're looking for, what the voters of West Virginia are looking for is someone who's not in somebody else's pocket. And that's what we can offer. And when we do that, when we speak to the direct interests of people and we listen more than we we're able to build a movement where people can come together and fight for something big and bold uh, for all of us, rather than watering down a message. You know, a watered down message doesn't get anybody off the couch. The answer is to be bold on lots of issues, not weak on every issue. Uh, so very well said. So very well said. Uh, now let's talk about the incumbent and with the strength of incumbency. Jim Justice, is it? Yes, that's his name. And. Uh, give me a sense of where he is. I mean, uh, you've talked about the fact that you don't take uh, corporate PAC money and uh, you don't take lobbyist money. Uh, I, I presume that that isn't necessarily something that he adheres to on the other side? That's correct. Uh, Jim Justice is the wealthiest man in West Virginia. He's a billionaire who got wealthy by hurting workers, not paying his taxes, undercutting small businesses, and avoiding his fines. Uh, and that's exactly what he's continued to do as governor. In West Virginia, for a long time, we've had politicians that don't really have a D or an R next to their name. They just have dollar signs. They are in it for themselves. And when they govern, their lives get better and the lives of the people around them get better. Uh, and that's why we're hurting as badly as we are. Uh, the people of West Virginia know this. That's why so many of us don't bother to vote at all. We're tired of having this false choice, this lesser of two evils, which is why it's our responsibility as people who are running all across West Virginia and across the country to offer something that is fundamentally different, something that refuses to play by those normal rules. And that's the contrast we offer uh, to this coal baron. It's, uh, it's surprising when you describe Jim Justice that he's won the, the gubernatorial seat. Uh, I guess we can have a conversation of that another time. We only have a couple of seconds, but uh, in the last couple of seconds, please make whatever point. It's, uh, it's an open forum. So uh, we are about to break uh, a hallowed record in West Virginia political history. Uh, we are about to have more donations than any governor who's ever run for office. Remember the election, the general election is still nine months away, but we are about to break Joe Manchin's record for most donations in a governor's race in West Virginia history. And if you're watching this, you can help us do it. Uh, the only way we get a government that works for all of us is if all of us 
pitch in. You can go to wvcantwait.com. Please steal our strategy, steal our policy ideas. Give me a call if you're from another state and you want to learn how we're doing this. We love learning from other organizers around the country. And if you're able, please donate tonight. Uh, we are absolutely up against, in both the primary and the general, politicians who are willing to take money we won't, which means we need yours. Uh, thanks so much for this opportunity. It's a okay. pleasure. Stephen Smith, you are a terrifically fresh and dynamic voice. We wish you the best. You're really building a movement. I'm so proud of you. And again, one last time, we'll post it. We had it on screen when you were mentioning it before, but uh, just again, it's WV for West Virginia, WVCantWait.com. WVCantWait.com. One uh, last thing, if I may, uh, and I appreciate the kind words. Uh, let's be really clear the only time movements work is because mostly working class women behind the scenes make them work. And our campaign is no different. Katie Lauer, our campaign manager, is the architect of this structure. And we've got a brilliant all union staff, nine women across West Virginia building this political infrastructure. They're the ones who deserve the praise, but I appreciate the kind words. Stephen Smith, good luck. Thanks so much. Can't wait. West Virginia can't wait. Uh, we wish you the best and we want to hear good news from you. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for joining us. Well, that's it for our show. Thank you for joining us. I have a podcast. It's called The Edge with Mark Thompson. You can check it out. A little politics at the beginning, and then we get in. I think this episode is all about the cops coming to my house with an intruder on the premises. It's pretty wild. Uh, and then there's a, a plant-based dietitian, one of the most famous in the world, who joins us at the end of the episode. So good stuff on that show as well. We have to wrap up here, but again, always a pleasure. And two really exciting voices today on the conversation. So it was my honor to be part of things. Until we meet again, bye-bye. <laughs>